0: and chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, in our Bibles this morning. While you're turning there, let me just mention that many have come to recognize this Sunday, uh, the Sunday preceding Easter and the celebration of the resurrection. Many have come to recognize this as Palm Sunday. And highlighting uh, the highlight of Palm Sunday, of course, would have been the triumphal entry And so we're looking forward to exploring that together in this evening's service. And then next Sunday, of course, our focus will be on the the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And I trust that you'll take some time, even during this week, in between uh, uh, the triumphal entry in Palm Sunday and the resurrection is our lord and savior going to the cross of calvary to lay down his life for us and it's a wonderful week to see the full package i trust you'll take some additional time in that regard as we turn to matthew chapter 9 this morning this is the first time that we've turned to this chapter in our extended study of the book of matthew and when we turn here we are at the midpoint of a two-chapter section that records 10 sample miracles of Jesus and we know that we're at the midpoint not just because we're at the start of the second chapter but because we have considered together five of those 10 sample miracles many of you have them noted in your margin And even a a brief description of each of them in the first three miracles, we saw Jesus' power over physical illness. And again, perhaps you have them labeled over illnesses like leprosy and paralysis and an infectious fever. But in addition to uh, his healing men and women of physical illness, those three miracles also highlight his tenderness and willingness to minister to people that the common man of his day might have shied away from. Then in the fourth miracle, we saw Jesus' power over the natural world to the point that he can just rebuke, he can speak words of rebuke to winds and waves And they obey him, as the text says. And in the presence of such power, the disciples just stand in awe. And they openly question, what manner of man is this? That even the wind and waves obey him. And then the fifth miracle that we gave attention to last week The demonic world actually gives their own testimony to who he is. The disciples are marveling, what manner of man is this? But when demons that had possessed and degraded two men see Jesus coming to them, they actually cry out, Jesus, thou son of God. The demons actually give witness to Jesus. The deity of Jesus Christ. They knew him to be the eternal son who had taken on human flesh. And they even say, are you here to torment us before the time? They knew he's not only eternal God, but that he had the power to consign them to an eternal place of torment. And now this morning we move into a consideration of the sixth miracle that is recorded in this section. And what we're going to see is that Jesus uh, delivers a man once again from a physical ailment. But now it will not be the physical deliverance that is the focal point of the attention. In the drama that surrounds this miracle, we get an opportunity to see the clearest witness in this section to what the miracles were declaring about Jesus. Then I've reviewed even those five, not just to bring us up to date, but, but to rehearse physical deliverance and deliverance over the natural world and over the demonic world even. But what are all these miracles designed to ultimately witness to about Jesus? What's the big idea they proclaim? And I think as we walk through the scene, we'll be able to answer that question. As we look at the text in verse number one, it speaks of Jesus returning to uh, his own city at the end of that verse. They entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And if you haven't noted this to this point, at in his adult life, that is actually referring to the city of Capernaum. We could take the time to establish that from other texts. But you knew he grew up in the city of what? He grew up in the city of Nazareth. But as an adult, he's moved now about 40 miles to the city of Capernaum, which is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there in Capernaum, verse 2 tells us that some brought him a man that was, as our account reads, he was sick of the palsy and lying on a bed. Now, those descriptions, as well as other details recorded in Mark and Luke, point to this man being what we would call today a paraplegic. Right? There's no function at all of the lower extremities of the body, including both legs. So he's paralyzed from the waist down. Now, the rest of the record that we have here is actually quite a bit more limited and streamlined than what we have in in both Mark and Luke and you don't need to even those of you that take good notes if you want to you can write it down the data is not uh, is not a big deal but Matthew uses 126 words while Mark uses 196 words hey that's just saying that that Mark Mark's record has 70 more words than Matthew's and when you go to Luke there's 212 words so 84 more words than what Matthew uses to describe the scene and I'm not having us turn to either of those texts now but what they have that we don't have is in part the fact that the house where these men found Jesus was so packed with people that friends of the paraplegic man actually got a ladder And they went up on the roof and they took a portion of the roof apart and they let their friend and the bed that he was in down through the roof to be seen by Jesus. And I'm bringing up what is unrecorded here in Matthew, that part of the drama, to just remind us again that Matthew, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Matthew is being selective in the details that he provides for us so that he keeps the emphasis on a particular theme, right? And I think you know what that's like. We have a tendency when we start to tell a story that we can digress into one detail and another detail and another detail, and it's all true, and have you ever been there? You're in the middle of telling the story, and all of a sudden you say, I can't remember why I even started into this. Hey, what's the point? Well, as Matthew is guided by the Spirit of God... He's leaving out some things to keep to a particular point. Now, the couple of details that we have about the man here that that Matthew records are important in light of what's coming. One of those details at the end of verse number two is that this man has some consciousness of his sins. Yeah, you can see there the encouragement, son, be of good cheer Thy sins be forgiven thee. And and the be of good cheer is a translation of a word that has the idea of a be curatus. Or we might say take heart. What he's supposed to take heart about is the fact that his sins could be forgiven. And we don't know how it is that this man came to be in some kind of fear about his sins. Right? We do know that in that day, there was a prevailing thought that someone with you know, debilitating disease of, of one stripe or another must be an exceptional sinner. That's what people thought. It isn't that you know others aren't sinners, but this kind of person has to be an exceptional sinner to be in this kind of debilitation. That's a common suggestion. And Jesus, on several other occasions, made it clear that there isn't always a one-for-one connection between disease and sin. There can be, but, but natural catastrophes, uh, diseases, events like that aren't always connected to specific sin. It could be, though, that that, that prevailing mindset in that day is even what God used to bring this paraplegic to the awareness of his sin. Maybe the Lord used something else. But what Jesus knew is that this man is not just burdened about his paralysis, but he's aware of his sin. And we also know this, that the greatest ailment any man, woman, or child has is their sin. And before there can be any deliverance from sin, there has to be conviction about sin. John Newton got it right. The second word, the, the second verse of his hymn, Amazing Grace, starts out by saying this. T'was grace that taught my heart to what? That taught my heart to, to fear. Brethren, it is the grace of God that makes any man come to tremble at the knowledge of his sinfulness. And, and Jesus knew that this man had some fear on account of his sin. And he also knew, and I, I know I'm thinking of a little out of order, but I back up into the previous phrase. Jesus not only knew he was aware of sin, but he saw there what? Okay. Behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus seeing there, he knew the presence of faith as well in the heart of this man and the others that brought him to Jesus. And it's these two dynamics that are present. And they have to be present in the heart of any man that receives forgiveness from the Lord. Any man that will receive forgiveness from the Lord has to know some kind of fear regarding my sinful state and they have to know faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And I know I've already mentioned amazing grace, but Newton went on to write, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And grace, my what? My fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. It's God's grace that makes a man aware of his sin. And it's God's grace that gives a man faith to believe in the person of Christ. And the place where any trembling soul finds relief is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for deliverance from sin. But with those two dynamics, again, briefly noted, and they really are in the text. Matthew goes on to highlight the controversy that ensued on a particular point of what happens. Jesus had at the end of verse 2 said to the paraplegic, your sins be forgiven. And as we go right into verse 3, that got a significant rise out of the leadership When they heard him speak those words, notice, behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, this man does what? Okay, this man is blaspheming. And if you, again, just a little description of of blasphemy, you look it up in a dictionary, it would be abusive speech. Um, It's insulting. It's slanderous. it's, It's mockery but it's in, a, it's in an intense form. It is exceptionally hurtful to the highest extreme. When committed against God, that is blasphemy against God, is regarded as the highest form of irreverence. And, and the Old Testament in multiple places actually called for the penalty of being stoned to death. Because if somebody is blaspheming God, they are verbally communicating (coughs) irreverence to God in the highest form. And I do want to pause here to note that there is an element of truth in what these scribes were saying. Brethren, it is blasphemous For any sinful man to claim the power to dismiss before God the sins of another man. We can forgive others their trespasses and offenses against against ourselves. But where a man stands before God is a matter that is between that man and God alone. And no sinner can dismiss another's sins before God. And if a man claims that he's doing it, he's he's what? He's blaspheming. On September the 1st of 2015, headlines of USA Today and other media outlets here in America announced that Pope Francis, in his visit was allowing priests to forgive abortion. The article went on to say, and I'm I'm quoting, in a letter published by the Vatican, the pontiff, who has been striving to build a more inclusive church, said priests will have the power during a special holy year of mercy that begins in December. And now they quote from the Pope, He said, I have decided, notwithstanding anything to the contrary, to concede to all priests for the Jubilee year the discretion of absolving of the sin of abortion those who have procured it and who with contrite hearts seek forgiveness for it. And brethren, I'm not engaging in a religious turf war this morning. Trust me, never are. But on the authority of scripture, I will say that that entire statement is full of blasphemy. The Pope has no authority to forgive sins. He doesn't have the prerogative to extend that power to the priest. And any priest who presumes that he has it is is himself blasphemy. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There's one that has the power to forgive sin. And that one is Jesus Christ and him alone. And that recent papal pronouncement involves dynamics that are not new a Catholic answer site. You could go there and look it up like I did. It quotes from catechisms and papal pronouncements and other Catholic scholars to talk to you about what you can do about your sin. First, it says, baptism was given to take away sin inherited from Adam, in parentheses, original sin, and any sins we commit before baptism. Second, for sins committed after baptism, a different sacrament is needed. It's been called penance or confession. And then there's some extensive discussion of penance and confession. And they finally ask, is the Catholic who confesses his sins to a priest any better off than the non-Catholic who confesses directly to God? And here's the answer. They give. They say yes. The Catholic receives sacramental graces the non-Catholic doesn't get. Through the sacrament of penance, sins are forgiven and graces are obtained. The Catholic is assured that his sins are forgiven. He does not have to rely on a subjective feeling. So a sinner who goes to another sinner to confess his sins and the other sinner pronounces the sins dismissed and that brings you greater assurance than going to God alone? That's Catholic pronouncements. And brethren, I say again, I'm not out to get Catholics or or any leadership of Catholics, but I am saying the scribes that reacted to Jesus had it right. If that's what's going on, that's blasphemy. It's insulting and offensive to God to the highest degree for a sinful man to take on a prerogative that is due God alone and then to suggest that God is approving. And again, I, I, I feel like sometimes he have to make disclaimers. Don't think that for one second that I don't like Catholic people or I think that we should be against them. And don't, don't think that there's any hint in me that, that you know, these leaders should be stoned for making those kind of statements. I don't believe that. We're not and we should not be living under that code of law. But I am spending some time and and I I do trust that you understand, brethren, that when we vigorously and tenaciously oppose false teaching and anything that compromises with it, we're opposing it because it's a false gospel. It it, it could sound like good news. You know, you can go to a, a sinful man and he can dismiss your sins, but it's a falsehood. You can't get forgiveness. From another sinner, and what the scribes in our passage had not come to grips with yet, or they had seen it and rejected it, is the truth that Jesus was not just another sinner. He's not a mere man; as God's own eternal Son, he had prerogatives that no other man ever had or will ever have. And after confronting the men in verse four. With what they hadn't said openly, I mean verse three, they said it within themselves. Verse four, Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, "Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts?" In verse five, then Jesus goes on to ask them a question: "For whether it is easier to say, "Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, "Arise and walk." All right, now, if you're just talking about saying the words, okay, they're equally easy to pronounce. Right? The point that he's making, though, is this which one is easier to say without verification? Okay? I can say, I can say, I have power to forgive your sins. But there's no way of what? There's no way of verifying that until you stand before God's judgment. But if I say, I have the power to heal a paraplegic, well, a pretty simple observation can test the authenticity of that. If I say, I can do such and such, and you say to me, prove it, which one of these could be proven? Okay? In that sense, again, in that sense, it's easier to say you're forgiven because that can't be immediately what? It can't be proved. But as we go into verse number six, Jesus says, all right, I'm going to show you who I am. And I'm going to give you evidence That I have the authority to forgive sin. And what he wants to draw attention to first of all. Is his identity revealed in verse number 6 in that phrase. The son of man. Notice verse 6. But that ye may know that the son of man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Now some are familiar. With with his using this expression, son of man, and likely a number of us are not. And so I want to encourage you to put in your margin, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If you don't have it there, you're a Bible publisher, you don't have a study Bible with you, if you don't have it, put it in there. All right? Son of man in verse 6, somehow draw, maybe circle that, draw a line out to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And then I I want to have you Keep your finger here because we're going to be right back. But I do want us to go to Daniel 7 and see what it says here. All right, Daniel chapter 7. And verse number 13. Daniel had received a vision that he came to understand as a succession of kingdoms that are going to culminate in one future kingdom that was going to be in open defiance against God. And we know that there's a kingdom, there's a world order that is yet coming that is going to be headed up by the Antichrist himself that's going to be in open defiance against God. And we see the overtones of that developing. I mean, it's like the cloud that you see on the horizon that is moving in. But God is going to subdue that rebellious kingdom and set up his own king and and look at daniel's record in verse 13 now that you're there he said i saw in the night visions and behold one like the son of man right same phrase he just used behold one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed right this is the account of god the father turning over all the kingdoms of this world To be ruled over. By his eternal son. But by that time. His eternal son. Will have taken on. The form of a what? Of a man. As born of a woman. And now if you will go back to uh, Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9. Jesus uses the expression of himself to make the claim that he is that very figure. Yes, he's been born of a woman in Bethlehem, fled into Egypt, raised in Nazareth, living in Capernaum. But he is at the same time eternal God that has taken on flesh. And with that identity, verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man, God's anointed King, with that identity comes the prerogative to forgive sins. And it's as if he says, look, I am about to give you a tangible, right in your face demonstration that I have authority over sin and all its consequences. And again, remember, even if you can't make a one-for-one connection between particular sin and particular disability, all forms of sickness, all disability, all decay of our body are the consequence of what? Of sin. And to show that the Son of Man had authority over the entire package in the middle of verse 6, notice that he says to this sick of the palsy, to this paraplegic, he said... Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And brethren, verse 7 says, he arose and departed. He, this, look, this man didn't get a little twitch and some feeling and start to, you know, kind of feebly attempt to move his legs. The man got up and carried his own bed in his own strength. And walked home. Because Jesus said so. Look at verse 8. When the multitude saw it. They marveled. Now what's interesting about this word. Is this is the same word from which we get fear. The word fear. There, There was a trembling astonishment. At the witness of supernatural power. And not only was there this trembling, like, what just happened? But then, notice, they glorified God, which had given such, and I gave you this when we overviewed the two-chapter the two section, which had given such power. And there's two words, remember, we keep saying them. One of them is dunamis, which is like dynamite, power of ability. But another one is exousia, which is the power that comes with a position of authority. You can do it because of your position. And that's this word. When he said, get up, take your bed and go home. And the man did it like that. They were like, what did we just see? Wow, what kind of authority must he have from God? What kind of a man is this? And and brethren, I'm going to repeat a statement that I've made before. I don't doubt that Jesus was tender towards the man's physical ailment. But this deliverance is not primarily a display of Jesus' compassion. And, And there will be other miracles where we read, in particular, the Gospel of Luke is going to emphasize Jesus' compassion to people in need. So I'm not saying that he wasn't compassionate. But the miracles are not primarily a display of his compassion. This miracle is clearly a display of authority that gave witness to his true identity. Jesus is not first and foremost a, a compassionate healer of physical infirmity. He is first and foremost God's anointed king with authority to deliver from sin and all of its consequences, including physical infirmity. And you don't need to turn back now, all the way to the first chapter of this gospel, but but an angel, Matthew told us that an angel told Joseph that the name of Mary's baby would be... Thou shalt call his name, what? Jesus. And then he gave this explanation. For he shall save his people from their what? From their sins. And he's saying, I've got the authority to do just that. And to show you I have it, look at what I'm going to do to this man. I'm going to dismiss his paralysis. And brethren, eventually, eventually, it would be this charge of blasphemy that the leadership used to condemn Jesus to death. But according to Romans chapter 1, God declared Jesus to be, in fact, his son with all authority. Do we know it? By the resurrection from the dead. (laughs) You can condemn him, as you say, for blasphemy. You can, with wicked hands, in rejection of his identity. You can crucify him on the cross of Calvary. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring him back up out of that grave... Three days later, and you're going to see him then, and the day is coming when every eye is going to see him. And every knee is going to bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord with all authority to forgive all sin. So after the resurrection and before the ascension into heaven, Jesus actually told his disciples when he gave him the Great Commission in Luke chapter 24, he told him to go out and preach that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. And as you follow the record in the book of Acts, you read the apostles preaching to repent and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ and him alone. And Peter will even say, ironically the one that Catholics say was the first pope, and that Francis in his train is kind of declaring he has the right to forgive and even grant to others the right to forgive. Do you know what Peter said? Peter said in Acts chapter 4 that neither is there salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. All the dismissing of sin will be done by Christ and through Christ to the glory of Christ alone. And brethren, if you are here, if you're here this morning with with a physical infirmity of any kind, fatigue, sickness, disease, whatever it may be, I do want to remind you this morning that that is all the product of sin and there is one and only source of forgiveness from sin and that is the son of man Jesus Christ and when you come to him conscious of your sin and maybe even trembling on account of it I think back to My own mom's testimony being taken to Sunday school and church as a young girl. Regularly, faithfully, hearing about God, knowing she was a sinner. But still at age 9 and 10, not knowing exactly what could be done to see her sin and the guilt before God for her sin removed. And if you're here conscious of your sin... And even trembling at the thought of it. If you will come to him in faith, you can receive from him assurance of the dismissal of your sin. Jesus said, Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Then, dear friend, whether he forgives, whether whether he, he will forgive your sin, and whether he removes the infirmity. In this life or not, there is an eternal life that is coming that is free from all the effects of sin, including all those infirmities. And if you have never, in a definite, unreserved, believing way, you need to turn to him today and to turn to him alone and cry out to him to save you from your sin. And if you know him as Savior today, trust in him for ongoing deliverance from sin's practice and its rule over you. And dear child of God, if you're in Christ today, rejoice in what awaits you in glory when every effect of sin has forever been dismissed by the one who has all authority to do it fully and finally would you bow your heads and close your eyes and i just want to give opportunity for you to talk to the lord yourself about your sin about the effects of your sin that you feel and know And maybe there is somebody right now, right in your seat. You need to, in a very definite, unreserved fashion, turn to the Lord. Thank him for his grace that has taught your heart to fear. And make you aware of your sin and tremble before him. And you need to cry out, dear Lord, save me. Save me from my sin's penalty save me from its rule and reign over me save me from my sin and trust him alone and somebody else many of us here this morning need to just with again trembling humbled Hearts just need to cry out and say, Lord, thank you that you have saved. Thank you for all that you did to deliver. Forgive me that I've known so little of what I ought to know about the grace to live practically delivered.